0: Chapter Five of the Holiday Round, by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: An Odd Lot. Section One: The Coming of the Crocus. It's a beautiful day again, sir," said my gardener James, looking in at the study window. "Beautiful, James, beautiful," I said as I went on with my work. YOU MIGHT ALMOST SAY AS SPRING WAS HERE AT LAST, LIKE. CROSS YOUR FINGERS QUICKLY, JAMES, AND TOUCH WOOD. LOOK HERE, I'LL BE OUT IN A MINUTE AND GIVE YOU SOME ORDERS, BUT I'M VERY BUSY JUST NOW. THOUGHT PERHAPS YOU'D LIKE TO KNOW THERE'S ELEVEN CROCUSES IN THE FRONT GARDEN? THEN SEND THEM AWAY, WE'VE GOT NOTHING FOR THEM. CROCUSES! SHOUTED JAMES. I JUMPED UP eagerly AND CLIMBED THROUGH THE WINDOW. "'My dear man,' I said, shaking him warmly by the hand, "'this is indeed a day. Crocuses, and in the front, gar- on the south lawn. Let us go and gaze at them.' They were there, eleven of them. Six golden ones, four white, and a little mauve chap. "'This is a triumph for you, James. It's wonderful. Has anything like this ever happened to you before?' "'There'll be some more up to-morrow, I won't say as not. "'Those really are growing, are they? "'You haven't been pushing them in from the top? "'They were actually born on the estate?' "'There'll be a fine one in the back bed soon,' said James proudly. "'In the back, my dear James. "'In the spare bed on the northeast terrace, I suppose you mean? "'And what have we in the Dutch ornamental garden?' "'If I has to look after ornamental gardens and south aspics and all, "'I ought to have my salary raised,' said James, still harping on his one grievance. "'By all means raise some celery,' I said coldly. "'Take a spade and raise some for lunch. I shall be only too delighted. "'This here isn't a season for celery, as you know well.' This here's the season for crocuses, as any one can see if they use their eyes. James, you're right. Forgive me. It is no day for quarrelling. It was no day for working either. The sun shone upon the close-cropped green of the deer park. The sky was blue above the rose garden. In the tapioca grove a thrush was singing. I walked up and down my estate and drank in the good fresh air. "'James,' I called to my head-gardener. "'What is it now?' he grumbled. "'Are there no daffodils to take the winds of March with beauty?' "'There's these eleven croak—but there should be daffodils, too. Is not this March?' "'It may be March, but tisn't the time for daffodils. Not on three shillings a week.' "'Do you only get three shillings a week?' "'I thought it was three shillings an hour.' Likely an hour. Ah, well, I knew it was three shillings. Do you know, James, in the Silly Islands there are fields and fields and fields of nodding daffodils out now? Lore, said James. Did you say lore or liar, I asked suspiciously. To think of that now, said James cautiously. He wandered off to the tapioca grove. Lent against it in thought for a moment, and came back to me. What's wrong with this little bit of garden, this here park, he began, is the soil. It's no soil for daffodils. Now what daffodils like is clay. Then, for heaven's sake, get them some clay. Spare no expense. Get them anything they fancy. It's too alluvial. That's what's the matter. Too alluvial. "'Now crocuses like a bit of alluvial. "'That's where you have it.' "'The matter with James is that he hasn't enough work to do. "'The rest of the staff is so busily employed "'that it is hardly ever visible. "'William, for instance, is occupied entirely "'with what I might call the poultry. "'It is his duty, in fact, to see that there are always "'enough ants' eggs for the goldfish.' "'All these prize Leghorns you hear about are the merest novices compared with William's protégés. "'Then John looks after the staggery, Henry works the coloured fountain, and Peter paints the peacock's tails. "'This keeps them all busy, but James is forever hanging about. "'Almost seems as if they were human,' he says, as we stood listening to the rocks. "'Oh, are you there, James?' It's a beautiful day. Who said that first? I believe you did. Them there rooks always make a place seem so homelike. Rooks and crocuses, I say, and you don't want anything more. Yes, well, if the rooks want to build in the raspberry canes this year, let them, James. Don't be inhospitable. Of course, some do like to see primroses, I don't say, but... "'Primroses! I knew there was something. Where are they?' "'It's too early for them,' said James hastily. "'You won't get primroses now before April.' "'Don't say now, as if it were my fault. Why didn't you plant them earlier? I don't believe you know any of the tricks of your profession, James. You never seem to graft anything or prune anything, and I'm sure you don't know how to cut a slip. James, why don't you prune more?' prune now i should like to watch you where's the pruning hook can't possibly do it with a rake james spends most of his day with a rake sometimes leaning on it sometimes working with it the beds are always beautifully kept only the most hardy annual would dare to poke its head up and spoil the smooth appearance of the soil for those who like circles and rectangles of unrelieved brown "'James is undoubtedly the man.' "'As I stood in the sun, I had a brilliant idea. "'James,' I said, we "'will cut the croquet lawn this afternoon. "'You can't play croquet today. "'It's not warm enough. "'I don't pay you to argue, but to obey. "'At the same time, I should like to point out "'that I never said I was going to play croquet. "'I said that we, meaning you, would cut the lawn.' "'What's the good of that?' "'Why, to encourage the wonderful day, of course. "'Where is your gratitude, man?' "'Don't you want to do something to help? "'How can we let a day like this go past without some word of welcome? "'Out with the mower, and let us hail the passing of winter.' "'James looked at me in disgust. "'Gratitude,' he said indignantly to heaven and there's my eleven crocuses in the front, all a-singin' together like anything, on three bob a-week. Section 2. The Ordeal by Fire Our flame-flower, the family flame-flower, is now plainly established in the northeast corner of the pergola, and flourishes exceedingly. There, or thereabouts, It will remain through the generations to come, a cascade of glory to the eye, a fountain of pride to the soul. Our fathers' fathers, the unborn will say of us, performed this thing. They toiled and suffered that we might front the world with confidence, a family secure in the knowledge that it has been tried by fire and not found wanting. The Atherley's flame-flower, I am glad to inform you, is dead. We started the work five years ago. I was young and ignorant then. I did not understand. One day they led me to an old apple tree and showed me, fenced in at its foot, two twigs and a hint of leaf. The flame-flower, they said with awe in their voices. I was very young. I said that I didn't think much of it, it was from that moment that my education began. Everybody who came to see us had to be shown the flame-flower. Visitors were conducted to the apple-tree in solemn procession, and presented. They peered over the fence and said, "'Ah!' just as if they knew all about it. Perhaps some of them did. Perhaps some of them had tried to grow it in their own gardens.' as november came on and the air grew cold the question whether the flame-flowers should winter abroad became insistent after much thought it was moved to the shrubbery on the southern side of the house where it leaned against a laburnum until april with the spring it returned home seemingly stronger for the change but the thought of winter was too much for it and in october it was ordered south again FOR THE NEXT THREE YEARS, IT WAS CONSTANTLY TRYING DIFFERENT CLIMATES, AND TESTING VARIOUS DIETS. THOUGH IT WAS A TOUCH-AND-GO WITH IT ALL THIS TIME, OUR FAITH WAS STRONG, OUR COURAGE UNSHAKEN. JUNE 1908 FOUND IT IN THE GRAVEL PIT. IT SEEMED OUR ONLY HOPE, AND IN THE AUGUST OF THAT YEAR I WENT AND STAYED WITH THE ATHERLEYS. ONE MORNING AT BREAKFAST I CHALLENGED MISS ATHERLEY TO AN IMMEDIATE GAME OF TENNIS. ''Not directly after,'' said Mrs. Atherley. ''It's so bad for you. Besides, we must just plan our flame-flower first. I dropped my knife and fork and gazed at her, open-mouthed. ''Plant your what?'' I managed to say at last. ''Flame-flower. Do you know it? John brought one down last night. It looks so pretty growing up anything.'' ''It won't take a moment,'' said Miss Atherley, ''and then I'll beat you.'' "'But—but but you mustn't—you—you you mustn't talk like that about it,' I stammered. The, "'That's not the way to talk about a flame-flower. Why, what's wrong?' "'You're just going to plant it? Before you play tennis? It isn't a—a a buttercup. You can't do it like that.' "'Oh, but do give us any hints. We shall be only too grateful.' "'Hints? Just going to plant it?' I repeated, getting more and more indignant. "'I—I I suppose Sir Christopher Wren said to his wife at breakfast one morning, "'I've just got to design St. Paul's Cathedral, dear, and then I'll come and play tennis with you, "'if you can give me any hints.' "'Is it really so difficult?' asked Mrs. Atherley. "'We've seen lots in Scotland.' "'In Scotland, yes. Not in the south of England,' I paused, and then added— "'We have one. What soil is yours? Do you plant it very deep? Do they like a lot of water? These and other technical points were put to me at once. Those are mere details of horticulture,' I said. "'What I am protesting against is the whole spirit in which you approach the business, the light-hearted way in which you assume that you can support a flame-flower.' You have to be very superior, indeed, to have a flame-flower growing in your garden. They laughed. They thought I was joking. Well, we're going to plant it now, anyhow, said Miss Atherley. Come along and help us. We went out, six of us, Mrs. Atherley carrying the precious thing, and we gathered round an old tree-trunk in front of the house. It would look rather pretty here, said Mrs. Atherley, don't you think? i gave a great groan you you you're all wrong again i said in despair you don't put a flame flower in a place where you think it will look pretty you try in all humility to find a favoured spot where it will be pleased to grow there may be such a spot in your garden or there may not until i know you better i cannot say "'but it is extremely unlikely to be here, right in front of the window.' They laughed again and began to dig up the ground. I turned my back in horror. I could not watch, and at the last moment some qualms of doubt seized even them. They spoke to me, almost humbly. "'How would you plant it?' they asked. It was my last chance of making them realize their responsibility.' I cannot say at this moment, I began, exactly how the ceremony should be performed, but I should endeavour to think of something in keeping with the solemnity of the occasion. It may be that Mrs. Atherley and I would take the flower and march in procession round the fountain, singing a suitable chant, while Bob and Archie, with shaven heads, prostrated themselves before the sundial. Miss Atherley might possibly dance the fire-dance, upon the east lawn, while Mr. Atherley stood up one foot in the middle of the herbaceous border and played upon her with the garden hose. These, or other symbolic rites, we should perform before we planted it in a place chosen by chance. Then, leaving a saucer of new milk for it, lest it should thirst in the night, we would go away and spend the rest of the week in meditation. I paused for breath. That might do it, I added, or it might not, but at least that is the sort of spirit you want to show. Once more they laughed, and then they planted it. These have been two difficult years for me. There have been times when I have almost lost faith, and not even the glories of our own flame-flower could cheer me. But at last the news came— I was at home for the weekend, and after a rather tiring day showing visitors the northeast end of the pergola, I went indoors for a rest. On the table there was a letter for me. It was from Mrs. Atherley. By the way, she wrote, the Flame Flower is dead. By the way! But even if they had taken the business seriously, even if they had understood fully what a great thing it was they were attempting, even then I think they would have failed. For, though I like the Atholies very much, though I think them all extremely jolly, yet I doubt, you know, if they are quite the family, to have a flame-flower growing in their garden. Section 3. The Lucky Month. "'Know thyself,' said the old Greek motto. In Greek, but this is an English book. So I bought a little red volume called, Tersely Enough, Were You Born in January? I was, and, reassured on this point, the author told me all about myself. For the most part, he told me nothing new. "'You are,' he said, in effect, good-tempered, courageous ambitious loyal quick to resent wrong an excellent raconteur and a leader of men true generous to a fault yes i was overdoing that rather you have a ready sympathy with the distressed people born in this month will always keep their promises and so on there is no doubt that the author had the idea all right Even when he went on to warn me of my weaknesses, he maintained the correct note. People born in January, he said, must be on their guard against working too strenuously. Their extraordinarily active brains— Well, you see what he means. It is a fault, perhaps, and I shall be more careful in future. Mind I do not take offence with him for calling my attention to it. In fact, my only objection to the book— is its surface application to all the people who were born in January. There should have been more distinction made between me and the rabble. I have said that he told me little that was new. In one matter, however, he did open my eyes. He introduced me to an aspect of myself entirely unsuspected. They, he said, meaning me, have unusual business capacity, and are destined to be leaders in great commercial enterprises. One gets at times these flashes of self-revelation. In an instant I realized how wasted my life had been. In an instant I resolved that, here and now, I would put my great gifts to their proper uses. I would be a leader in an immense commercial enterprise." One cannot start commercial enterprises without capital. The first thing was to determine the exact nature of my balance at the bank. This was a matter for the bank to arrange, and I drove there rapidly. Good morning, I said to the cashier. I am in rather a hurry. May I have my passbook? He assented and retired. After an interminable wait, during which many psychological moments for commercial enterprise must have lapsed, he returned. "'I think you have it,' he said shortly. "'Thank you,' I replied, and drove rapidly home again. A lengthy search followed, but after an hour of it, one of those white-hot flashes of thought, such as only occur to the natural business genius, seared my mind and sent me post-haste to the bank again. "'After all,' I said to the cashier, I only want to know my balance. What is it? He withdrew and gave himself up to calculation. I paced the floor impatiently. Opportunities were slipping by. At last he pushed a slip of paper across at me. My balance. It was in four figures. Unfortunately, two of them were shillings and pence. Still, there was a matter of fifty pounds odd as well and fortunes have been built up on less. Out in the street, I had a moment's pause. Hitherto I had regarded my commercial enterprise in the bulk, as a finished monument of industry. The little niggling preliminary details had not come up for consideration. Just for a second, I wondered how to begin. Only for a second. An unsuspected talent, which has long lain dormant, Needs, when waked, a second or so to turn round in. At the end of that time I had made up my mind. I knew exactly what I would do. I would bring up my solicitor. Hello, is that you? Yes, this is me. What? Yes, awfully, thanks. How are you? Good. Look here. Come and lunch with me. What? No, at once. Good-bye. Business? particularly that sort of commercial enterprise to which I had now decided to lend my genius, can only be discussed properly over a cigar. During the meal itself, my solicitor and I indulged in the ordinary small talk of the pleasure-loving world. "'You're looking very fit,' said my solicitor. "'No, not fat. Fit.' "'You don't think I'm looking thin?' I asked anxiously. "'People are warning me that I may be overdoing it, rather. "'They tell me that I must be seriously on my guard against brain-strain.' "'I suppose they think you oughtn't to strain it too suddenly,' said my solicitor. "'Though he is now a solicitor, he was once just an ordinary boy like the rest of us, "'and it was in those days that he acquired the habit of being rude to me, "'a habit he has never quite forgotten.' "'Was it an onyx?' I said, changing the conversation. "'Why?' asked my solicitor, with his usual business acumen. "'Well, I was practically certain that I had seen one in the zoo, in the reptile house. "'But I have just learnt that it is my lucky month, Stone. "'Naturally, I want to get one.' "'The coffee came, and we settled down to commerce. "'I was just going to ask you,' said my solicitor, "'Have you any money lying idle at the bank? "'Because if so—' "'Whatever else it is doing, it isn't lying idle,' I protested. "'I was at the bank today, and there were men chivying it about with shovels all the time. "'Well, how much have you got? "'About fifty pounds. "'It ought to be more than that. "'That's what I say, but you know what banks are. "'Actual merit counts for nothing with them.' Well, what did you want to do with it? Exactly. That was why I rang you up. I, er, this was really my moment, but somehow I was not quite ready to seize it. My vast commercial enterprise still lacked a few trifling details. Er, I, well, it's like this. I might get you a few ground rents, don't. I shouldn't know where to put them. But if you really have fifty pounds simply lying idle, I wish you'd lend it to me for a bit. I'm confoundedly hard up. Generous to a fault, you have a ready sympathy with the distressed. Dash it, what could I do? Is it quite etiquette for clients to lend solicitors money? I asked. I thought it was always solicitors who had to lend it to clients. If I must, I'd rather lend it to you. I mean, I'd dislike it less, as to the old friend of my childhood. Yes, that's how I wanted to pay it back. Bother, then I'll send you a check tonight, I sighed. And that's where we are at the moment. People born in this month always keep their promises. The money has got to go tonight. If I hadn't been born in January, I shouldn't be sending it. I certainly shouldn't have promised it. I shouldn't even have known that I had it. Sometimes I almost wish that I had been born in one of the decent months. March, say. Section 4. A Summer Cold When I am not feeling well, I go to Beatrice for sympathy and advice. Anyhow, I get the advice. I think, I said carelessly, wishing to break it to her as gently as possible, I think I have hay fever. Nonsense, said Beatrice. That annoyed me. Why shouldn't I have hay fever if I wanted to? If you're going to go begrudging me every little thing, I began, you haven't even got a cold. As luck would have it, a sneeze chose that moment for its arrival. There, I said triumphantly. Why, my dear boy, if you had hay fever, you'd be sneezing all day. That was only a sample. There are lots more where that came from. Don't be so silly. Fancy starting hay fever in September. I'm not starting it. I am, I earnestly hope, just finishing it. If you want to know, I've had a cold all the summer. Well, I haven't noticed it. "'That's because I'm such a good actor. "'I've been playing the part of a man "'who hasn't had a cold all summer. "'My performance is considered to be most lifelike.' "'Beatrice disdained to answer, "'and by and by I sneezed again. "'You certainly have a cold,' she said, "'putting down her work. "'Come, this is something. "'You must be careful. "'How did you catch it?' "'I didn't catch it. "'It caught me. "'Last weekend? "'No.' last may beatrice picked up her work again impatiently i sneezed a third time is this more the sort of thing you want i said what i say is that you couldn't have had hay fever all the summer without people knowing but my dear beatrice people do know in this quiet little suburb you are rather out of the way of the busy world rumors of war depressions on the stock exchange My hay fever, these things pass you by, but the clubs are full of it. I assure you that all over the country, England's stately homes have been plunged into mourning by the news of my sufferings. Historic piles have bowed their heads and wept. I suppose you mean that in every house you've been to this summer you've told them that you had it, and they've been foolish enough to believe you that's putting it a little crudely what happens is-well all i can say is you know a very silly lot of people what happens is that when the mahogany has been cleared of its polished silver and choice nappery and wine of a rare old vintage is circulating from hand to hand if they wanted to take any notice of you at all "'They could have given you a bread poultice and sent you to bed. "'Then, as we impatiently bite the ends off our priceless Havanas, "'they might know that you couldn't possibly have hay fever.' "'I sat up suddenly and spoke to Beatrice. "'Why on earth shouldn't I have hay fever?' I demanded. "'Have you any idea what hay fever is?' I suppose you think I ought to be running about wildly, trying to eat hay, or yapping and showing an unaccountable aversion from dried grass. I take it that there are grades of hay fever, as there are of everything else. I have it at present in a mild form. Instead of being thankful that it is no worse, you, my dear boy— "'Hay-fever is a thing people have all their lives, and it comes on every summer. "'You've never even pretended to have it before this year. "'Yes, but you must start some time. "'I'm a little backward, perhaps. "'Just because there are a few infant prodigies about, don't despise me. "'In a year or two I shall be as regular as the rest of them.' "'And I sneezed again.' Beatrice got up with an air of decision and left the room. For a moment I thought she was angry and had gone for a policeman, but as the minutes went by and she didn't return, I began to fear that she might have left the house for good. I was wondering how I should break the news to her husband when, to my relief, she came in again. "'You may be right,' she said, putting down a small package and unpinning her hat. "'Try this.' The chemist says it's the best hay fever cure there is. It's in a lot of languages, I said, as I looked at the wrapper. I suppose German hay is the same as any other sort of hay? Oh, here it is in English. I say, this is, what do you call it, cure? So the man said. Homeopathic. It's made from the pollen that causes hay fever. Yes, ah, uh, yes. Yes. I coughed slightly and looked at Beatrice out of the corner of my eye. I suppose, I said carelessly, if anybody took this who hadn't got hay fever, the results might be rather—I mean, that he might then find that he, in fact, er, had got it. "'Sure to,' said Beatrice. "'Yes, that makes us a little thoughtful. We don't want to overdo this thing.' I went on, reading the instructions. "'You know, it's rather odd about my hay-fever. It's generally worse in town than in the country.' "'But, then, you started so late, dear. You haven't really got into the swing of it yet.' "'Yes, but still, you know, I have my doubts about the gentleman who invented this. We don't see eye to eye in this matter.' "'Beatrice, you may be right. Perhaps I haven't got hay-fever.' "'Oh, don't give up.' "'But all the same, I know I've got something. It's a funny thing about my being worse in town than in country. That looks rather as if—' "'By Jove, I know what it is. I've got just the opposite of hay-fever.' "'What is the opposite of hay? Why, bricks and things.' I gave a last sneeze and began to wrap up the cure. "'Take this pollen stuff back,' I said to Beatrice, "'and ask the man if he's got anything homeopathic made from paving stones, "'because you know that's what I really want.' "'You have got a cold,' said Beatrice. Section 5. A Modern Cinderella Once upon a time, there was a beautiful girl who lived in a mansion in Park Lane, with her mother and her two sisters, and a crowd of servants. Cinderella, for that was her name, would have dearly loved to have employed herself about the house sometimes, but whenever she did anything useful, like arranging the flowers or giving the pug a bath, her mother used to say, "'Cinderella, what do you think I engage servants for?' Please, don't make yourself so common. Cinderella's two sisters were much older and plainer than herself, and their mother had almost given up hope about them, but she used to drag Cinderella to balls and dances night after night, taking care that only the right sort of person was introduced to her. There were many nights when Cinderella would have preferred a book at home in front of the fire, for she soon found that her partner's ideas of waltzing were as Catholic as their conversation was limited. It was, indeed, this fondness for the inglenook that had earned her the name of Cinderella. One day, when she was in the middle of a delightful story, her mother came in suddenly and cried, "'Cinderella, why aren't you resting as I told you? You know we are going to the hog-bins to-night.' "'Oh, mother,' pleaded Cinderella, "'need I go to the dance?' "'Don't be so absurd. Of course you're going. But I've got nothing to wear.' "'I've told Jennings what you're to wear. Now go and lie down. I want you to look your best tonight, because I hear that young Mr. Hogbin is back again from Australia.' "'Young Mr. Hogbin was not the king's son. He was the son of a wealthy gelatine manufacturer.' "'Then may I come away at twelve? begged Cinderella. "'You'll come away when I tell you.' Cinderella made a face and went upstairs. "'Oh, dear,' she thought to herself. "'I wish I were as old as my two sisters "'and could do what I liked. "'I'm sure if my godmother were here "'she would get me off going.' "'But, alas, her godmother lived at Leamington, "'and Cinderella, after a week at Leamington,' had left her there only yesterday. Cinderella, indeed, looked beautiful, as they started for the ball, but her mother, who held a review of her in the drawing-room, was not quite satisfied. "'Cinderella,' she said, "'you know I said you were to wear the silver slippers.' "'Oh, mother, they are so tight,' pleaded Cinderella. "'Don't you remember I told you at the time that they were much too small for me?' "'Nonsense!' "'Go and put them on at once.' The dance was in full swing when Cinderella arrived. Although her lovely appearance caused several of the guests to look at her, they did not ask each other eagerly who she was, for most of them knew her already as Miss Partington Smith. A brewer's son led her off to a dance. The night wore on slowly. One young man after another trod on Cinderella's toes, trotted in circles round her, ran her violently backwards into some other man, or swooped with her into the fireplace. Cinderella, whose feet seemed mechanically to adapt themselves to the interpretation of the Boston that was forming in her partner's brain, bore it from each one as long as she could and then led the way to a quiet corner, where she confessed frankly that she had not bought all her Christmas presents yet, and that she was going to Switzerland for the winter. The gelatine manufacturer's son took her in to supper. It was noticed that Cinderella looked much happier as soon as they had sat down, and indeed throughout the meal she was in the highest spirits. For some reason or other, she seemed to find even Mr. Hogben endurable. But just as they were about to return to the ballroom, an expression of absolute dismay came over her face. "'Anything the matter?' said her partner. no said Cinderella, but she made no effort to move. "'Well, shall we come?' yes she waited a moment longer. "'dropped her fan under the table, picked it up slowly, and followed him out. "'Let's sit down here,' she said in the hall, not upstairs.' "'They sat in silence, for he had exhausted his stock of questions at the end of their first dance, and had told her all about Australia during supper, while she apparently had no desire for conversation of any kind, being wrapped up in her thoughts.' "'I'll wait here,' she said, as a dance began. "'If you see Mother, I wish you'd send her to me.' Her mother came up eagerly. "'Well, dear, it's young Mr. Hogbin. I knew it.' "'Who?' "'Oh, er, yes, of course. I'll tell you all about it in the carriage, Mother. "'Is my little girl going to be happy?' "'I don't know,' said Cinderella, anxiously.' "'There's just a chance.' "'The chance must have come off, for, once in the carriage, "'Cinderella gave a deep sigh of happiness. "'Well, dear,' said her mother again. "'You'll never guess, mother,' laughed Cinderella. "'Try.' "'I guess that my little daughter thinks of running away from me,' "'said her mother archly. "'Am I right?' Oh, how lovely! Why, running away is simply the last thing I could do. Look! She stretched out her foot, clothed only in a pale blue stocking. Cinderella! I told you they were too tight, she explained rapidly, and I was trodden on by every man in the place, and I simply had to kick them off at supper, and and I only got one back i don't know what happened to the other i suppose it got pushed along somewhere but anyhow i wasn't going under the table after it she laughed suddenly and softly to herself i wonder what they'll do when they find the slipper she said of course the king's son or anyway mr Hogbin, ought to have sent it round to all the ladies in mayfair taking knightly oath to marry her whom it fitted But what actually happened was that a footman found it, and, being very sentimental, and knowing that nobody would ever dare to claim it, carried it about with him ever afterwards, thereby gaining a great reputation with his cronies as a nut. Oh, and, by the way, I ought to put in a good word for the godmother. She did her best. Cinderella, said her mother at lunch the next day, as she looked up from her letters, "'Why didn't you tell me your godmother was ill?' "'She wasn't very well when I left her, but I didn't think it was anything much. "'Is she bad?' "'I am sorry.' "'She writes that she has obtained measles. "'I suppose that means you're infectious.' "'Really, it's very inconvenient.' "'Well, I'm glad we didn't know yesterday, or you couldn't have gone to the dance.' "'Dear Fairy Godmother,' said cinderella to herself she was a day too late but how sweet of her to think of it at all section six a literary light annesley bupp was born of the bupps of hampshire the fighting bupps as they were called A sudden death in the family left him destitute at the early age of thirty, and he decided to take seriously to journalism for a living. That was twelve years ago. He is now a member of the Authors' Club, a popular after-dinner speaker in reply to the Toast of Literature, and one of the best-paid writers in Fleet Street. Who's Who tells the world that he has a flat at Knightsbridge and a cottage on the river if you ask him to what he owes his success he will assure you with the conscious modesty of all great men that he has been lucky pressed further that hard work and method have been his watchwords but to the young aspirant he adds that of course if you have it in you it is bound to come out when annesley started journalism he realized at once that it was necessary for him to specialize in some subject. Of such subjects, two occurred to him, George Herbert and trams. For a time he hesitated, and it was only the sudden publication of a brief but authoritative life of the poet which led him finally to the study of one of the least explored of our transit systems. Meanwhile, he had to support himself, For this purpose, he bought a roll-top desk, a typewriter, and an almanac. He placed the almanac on top of the desk, seated himself at the typewriter, and began. It was the month of February. The almanac told him that it wanted a week to Shrove Tuesday. In four days, he had written as many articles, entitled, respectively, Shrove Tide Customs, The Pancake, lenten observances and tuesdays known to fame the pancake giving as it did the context of every reference in literature to pancakes the tuesday article which hazarded the opinion that rome may at least have been begun on a tuesday the most daring but all of them were published this early success showed annesley the possibilities of the topical article it led him also to construct a revised calendar for his own use. In the Bup Almanac, the events of the day were put back a fortnight, so that, if the feast of St. Simon and St. Jude fell upon the 17th, Annesley's attention was called to it upon the 3rd, and upon the 3rd he surveyed the famous partnerships of the epoch. Similarly, the origin of Lord Mayor's Day was put in hand on October 26th. He did not, however, only glorify the past. Current events claimed their meat of copy. In the days of his dependence, Annesley had travelled, so that he could well provide the local colour for such sketches as Kimberley as I Knew It, 1901, and Birmingham by Moonlight, 1903. His recollections of St. Peter's at Rome were hazy, yet sufficient to furnish an article with that title at the time of the coronation. But I must confess that dashes for the pole came entirely from his invaluable encyclopedia. Annis Bupp had devoted himself to literature for two years before his first article on trams was written. This was called Voltage, was highly technical, and convinced every editor to whom it was sent, and by whom it was returned, that the author knew his subject thoroughly. So when he followed it up with How to be a Tram Conductor, he had the satisfaction not only of seeing it in print within a week, but of reading an editorial reference to himself as the noted expert on our overhead system two other articles in the same paper some curious tram accidents and tram or bus established his position once recognized as the authority on trams Pup was never at a loss for a subject in the first place there were certain articles such as tramways in nineteen o four. Progress of Tramway Construction in the Past Year, Tramway Inventions of the Last Twelve Month, and The Tram, Its Future in 1905, which flowed automatically from his pen. From time to time there would arise the occasion for the topical article on trams, Trams as Army Transports, and How Are Trams Fared During the Recent Snow?, to give two obvious examples, and always there was a market for such staple articles as trams in fiction. You will understand, then, that by the end of 1906, Annesley Bupp had a reputation. To be exact, he had two reputations. In Fleet Street, he was known as a writer upon whom a sub-editor could depend, a furnisher of what got to be called buppy matter, which is paid at a slightly higher rate than ordinary copy, because the length and quality of it never vary. Outside Fleet Street, he was regarded simply as a literary light. Annesley Bupp, the fellow whose name you saw in every paper, an accepted author. It was not surprising, therefore, that at the beginning of 1907 public opinion forced Annesley into sick n w e r fields of literature it demanded from him among other things a weekly review of current fiction entitled fireside friends he wrote this with extraordinary fluency a few words of introduction followed by a large fragment of the book before him pasted beneath the line take this for instance an opinion of any kind he rarely ventured an adverse opinion, like a good friend, never. About this time he was commissioned to write three paragraphs each day for an evening paper. The first of them always began, Mr. Asquith's admission in the House of Commons yesterday that he had never done so-and-so is not without parallel. In 1746, the Elder Pitt, etc. The second always began. Mention of the Elder Pitt recalls the fact that. The third always began. It may not be generally known. Until he began to write these paragraphs, Annesley Bupp had no definite political views. Annesley Bupp is now at the zenith of his fame the buppy of old days he still writes occasionally but he no longer signs it in full a modest a b in the corner supposed by the ignorant to stand for arthur balfour is the only evidence of the author i say the only evidence for he has had like all great men his countless imitators Tram's also he deserted with the publication of his great work on the subject Tramiana, but as a writer on literature and Old London, he has a European reputation, and his recent book, In the Track of Shakespeare, a record of a visit to Stratford-on-Avon, created no little stir. He is in great request at public dinners, where his speech in reply to the toast of literature is eagerly attended. He contributes to every symposium in the popular magazines. It is all the more to be regretted that his autobiography, The Last of the Bups, is to be published posthumously. End of chapter 5